Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing inclusion and its important role in creating and maintaining competitive advantage. I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Frost, CEO at Included. Stephen, welcome to the show. Susie, thanks a lot. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Stephen, you're the founder and CEO of Included, which is a global impact-led diversity inclusion consultancy. And you've also written and authored several, I think it's four, books on diversity and inclusion. But, you know, you and your team at Included, you do so much more than just consulting. And this is really about impacting people's lives daily to make the world a better place. And you're on the same quest as me. And I think the more the merrier for this in trying to to create a fairer and a more inclusive workplace. So can I start with your tagline, which really caught my eye? Diversity is a reality. Inclusion is a choice. Let's start there. What's your definition of inclusion? And can you explain your tagline a little bit? No, sure. I think it's important because people often jumble words up together, don't they? And they just yeah. <laughs> put diversity, inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, or belong. They pull these words out there. I think, you know, words matter, right? Mm. So diversity is a fact, right? <laughs> diversity is like, you know, you and I are different. We're all different. No two people are the same. Diversity is a fact. It's a yeah. reality. Yeah. And look out the window and there you go. Inclusion is a choice because it depends whether you want to include that diversity. It's very possible to live in a diverse world, but only hang out with people like you. That's Mm. not really inclusive. Mm. Mm. So inclusive is about proactively choosing consciously, intentionally, including those people around you, especially those people who are different from you. Mm. Because the more that you can include people who are different from you, that allows inclusion to happen at scale. Mm. So at a very simple level, that's what inclusion is. Yeah. And it's not comfortable then, is it? Because it is more comfortable for me to hang around with people who think like me, who look like me, who are like me in inverted commas. But I think, you know, I always like to think of inclusion as um, getting more comfortable with feeling uncomfortable because that's what it's about, isn't it? Absolutely. The thing is, you know, you can be super comfortable with people like you. Mm. It's a very basic human need, isn't it? Yeah. Love and comfort and security. And that's completely understandable. Mm. And it's documented in the literature, right? Yeah. Like homo- homophily, like the natural normal tendency for humans to form into tribes. Yeah. Great. I mean, I, I get it. But that doesn't help us solve some problems mm. or tackle mm. some challenges. Mm. From climate change all the way down to workplace productivity, right? Because, it, you know, you and I could aggressively agree on stuff, but unless we have a devil's advocate in the meeting yeah. or someone who's an expert on, you know, climatology, we're not going to be able to come up with a solution that we need to. No. So, you know, it's about intentionally, as you said, leaning into discomfort and intentionally mm. being uncomfortable because that's how we learn and grow as humans yeah. and benefit from that. Mm. It is. It's leaning into that. It's also about having impact, which is a big part of what you do. And you make an explicit statement about that, which I wholly agree with, because often this subject remains at the level of reflection, not action. Yeah. And at the level of strategic objectives without any type of plan to put them into operational reality. So which brings me to your recent report, the uh, the impact report. And I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about what you were measuring in in that report, what impact, and what are your main findings? I mean, I know that's a big question, but if you could just pick one or two of the main findings to share with us. Absolutely, Susie, because I think it is important because 
if inclusion just remains this nebulous, mm. unmeasured thing, mm. then it'll breed cynicism and it, yep. it won't get converts, right? Because it just sounds fluffy and nice, but how does it actually materially impact people's lives, mm. right? So we, we really want to measure it. It's our core purpose. As you mm. said, we're impact-led. So we do it in a couple of ways. One is you look at what an organization or a team needs to actually do to create greater inclusion and belonging. Mm. And that's five things. You've got to have a strategy, mm-hmm. right? So you can't just wake up one morning and think, oh, we'll do a bit of that. You know, how does it feed into what you do? Mm. If you make widgets or produce clinical trials mm. or you produce tech algorithms, what is it that you do and how does inclusion feature in that? The second thing then is data, right? So measuring diversity which we talked about, but also measuring inclusion and belonging. Mm. Right? We measure through psychological safety and feelings of belonging. The third thing then is governance. So who is accountable for this? Because often we say lovely things, but no one's on the hook. Who's responsible? No. Who's accountable? Mm. And fourthly, leadership. So leadership's about behaviours. It's what we do, right? You can be as diverse as you like, but if your behaviours are terrible, then mm. it's diversity and diversity out. Yeah. So it's and then finally, it's systems. Mm. So it's about the little things, whether it's talent acquisition or procurement or marketing, the little systems and processes that are full of bias and mm. how we de-bias them. So that's kind of the, what you've got to do. Mm. And then there's kind of how mature you are on it. And we've got a four-point maturity scale, from 101, diversity 101, just compliance. Yeah. You know, you do it because you have to. You know, gender pay gap reporting, right? Diversity 2.0, you do it because it makes you look good. You know, black squares after black mm. lives matter. Mm. Inclusion 3.0, which is actually embedding it in what you do. So we actually do think about this practically when we recruit people or when we procure things. And then inclusion 4.0 is changing the system to be more inclusive. So, for example, it's great to promote women on leadership programs. Mm. If they're being promoted into a still a very potentially toxic male environment, what are you doing about that before mm. you focus on the promotions? Mm. Um, and if you imagine then this, this kind of matrix, we measure organizations based on how mature they are against those things. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you asked for a couple of examples. If we look at pharmaceuticals, we worked a lot in pharma. Generally speaking, pharma companies are getting quite good at strategy. Mm-hmm. So they're getting kind of inclusion 3.0, they're embedding it in their strategy. So they're thinking about it in clinical trial diversity now. They're thinking about it in talent acquisition, procurement. Okay. But they're lagging behind in governance, who's accountable, or leadership behaviours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if we look at, for example, a government department, it might be very good at you know systems. They've really mm-hmm. thought about the systems, but there's no real accountability or plugged into strategy. Mm-hmm. So, that's how we measure them. And obviously, a great organization for inclusion would be getting towards three or four on all of these things. But in practice, a lot of organizations have still got a long way to go. Yeah, because I, I had two questions and you've sort of partially answered both of them. So let's go to the first one, which is, you know, your vision for this subject, uh, Stephen. Right. What does good look like? So you, yeah. were, you were starting to talk about that there. What would a truly inclusive organization look like? And feel like for you so to kind of consolidate it, i suppose it would look like an inclusive organization that ultimately you felt it right you you, mm. you felt it in the culture that the behaviors 
were real, that the mm. walk matched match the talk, mm. that for what we call cognitive dissonance or the gap yeah. between what you say and what you what do, you do. Mm. is quite low, right? That's that's the, the short answer. But yes, the fuller answer is like I've garbled on a bit about strategy, data, governance, management systems, that those five things will be generally thought through and, in, and you'd have inclusion embedded in them. Mm. You'd even be looking at changing the system to make them more inclusive. So one example of something that's really cool that's pushing it more, the Wellcome Trust, world's second biggest fund of health research, they we work with them a lot on disability inclusion. Mm. And they found actually one of the biggest ways to make disabled folks feel more included was to change flexible working from being a request to a default. So we actually changed the system where flexible working is a default. And right. you opt out while not in. So it actually removed the pressure on the people who needed it most, but were least likely to ask for it. Ask for it. Mm. Yeah, so it's almost calling them in as opposed to yeah. calling them out in terms yeah. of psychological safety. They're creating yeah. a, a different environment, aren't they? And do you see many organisations who are in inclusion 4.0? Because that's in terms of creating inclusive human systems and inclusive organisational systems, that's where we need to be, isn't it? It is. And we have this conversation internally at Included all the time. In fact, even this morning, a colleague mm. um, messaged me saying, can we have another workshop on Inclusion 4.0? Absolutely. Because, mm. we're, you know, we're still kind of developing it out and researching it ourselves. But one simple example would be vacation, a holiday, you know, a holiday leave. Mm. Um, traditionally, in the UK, at least, there's been bank holidays and there's been this thing called Christmas at the end of the year. Right? Um, yeah. Now, what we decided to do, like quite a few other organisations now, is bundle up all those bank holidays, add them to annual leave and say, spend them however you want. Because Mm -hmm. maybe you don't celebrate Christmas, maybe you celebrate Diwali, maybe you celebrate, you know, I don't know, maybe you celebrate nothing. But the point being like, you use it's equitable, right? Use Mm -hmm. it in the way that works for you. And for us, that's changing the system, I suppose, to be employee centric Mm -hmm. rather than saying, no, thou shalt have these days off. Mm. And so that would be a very simple little example of inclusion 4.0. Mm. But, but bigger examples might be, for example, you know, recalibrating the criminal justice system, which still relies a lot on AR, VR, AI technology, mm. which is racially biased. Mm. Um, so, so that'll be a much bigger kind of um, adjustment to make. And we are seeing organisations kind of get into that space in some tech firms. We've worked with a few tech firms to change algorithm design, which has been great. Some pharma companies really thinking through clinical trials that can redo them in a different way. Mm. COVID's been a massive mm. challenge on that, right? Of course. Seven years, how can be two years and more diverse? So there are positive, you know, signs that it can be done. But mm. I think as as you you know, it, it's the minority. Mm. Uh, the vast majority is still motivated by compliance drivers in a diversity 101 sense. Mm. But do you feel that the tech sector, which is a great example because tech moves so quickly, and of course they have to get on board with these concepts and the opera- operationalization of these concepts quite quickly in terms of coding bias into algorithms and, and machine learning or not. Do you see them moving more quickly because it's more imperative to their business? Or Yes and no. Right. Okay. So we, we, we do a lot of work in tech and we work with the tech talent chart as well, who are wonderful. Mm-hmm and Tech Nation and a few other organisations, um, women in tech, lo- lots of organisations. Mm. Look, I'm very mindful here to caveat the heck out of what I'm about to say, Susie, right? <laughs> okay. It's going to be sweeping generalisations, but 
I think, generally speaking, a lot of the tech sector thinks it's a lot better than it actually is. Okay. Because they are quite good at data and reporting and sharing a lot of that data publicly, perhaps mm. more than any other sectors, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. big thumbs up. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of thoughtful things going on about um, algorithm bias, coding bias. Mm. How That's great. There's some really good examples of challenging stuff. However, we know that for all the talk of machine learning, it's humans that yeah. ultimately program those machines, right? Mm. Humans are innately biased. Yeah. And if you have a largely male, you know, heaven forbid, you know, frat bro culture, right, that's doing that input, then it's not surprising that the output is what it is. Mm. So I think, you know, it's a yes and no answer. I think that um, there are really positive things in terms of data transparency, reporting, mm. thoughtfulness on coding mm. and design. But perhaps that's the tip of the iceberg. And still the majority of the culture is really untouched and perhaps unaccountable mm. to these things that we need to, to impact to create change at a, at least at a massively scaled level. Mm. And well, it brings, so the data brings insight as well, doesn't it? It can now bring insight into behaviours in organisations and, you know, collaboration and belonging and, and things like that. But for me, it's the same discussion of, we can say we've got diverse people around a table, but I can't tick a box and say that our decision-making is inclusive. So I think that's really interesting because I think intellectually it's understood yeah. diversity and the fact that, you know, the data insights, they're understood. Yeah. But what do leaders need to do to make that decision-making process inclusive? Because when I speak to leaders about decision-making, so we have participative decision-making and, and when you actually get down to it and talk to everybody around the table, they don't, they all have a voice, but they don't all necessarily contribute. So, you know, I think it, we can quite easily get into a, a box ticking exercise of, oh, we listen to everyone. We do inclusive decision making because we have diverse people sat around the table. So it's really interesting, just like you were saying around accountability. It's often seen as a HR subject, which yeah. for me, it's it's not. It's everybody's subject and it's strategic for everybody, particularly for competitive advantage. So how do you go around helping organizations and leaders make their decision-making process more inclusive? I'll give you a couple of examples mm. because I'm totally with you that you often have, particularly leaders, particularly male leaders, yeah. almost with the crutch of, well, we've got diversity, tick, you know. Yes. No, 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 no. Inclusion is about leadership. It's a mm. verb, not a noun. And how you do what you do, not just on a Friday afternoon, yeah. how you do the decisions that you make throughout the week, right? Mm. So a couple of examples. One from the Bank of England that I can, I can talk about because we did a paper on it with them. Bank of England, super lovely people, super smart, very hierarchical, clear public purpose, right? And you have all the brilliant brains at the top of the organisation who are making decisions. Mm. But it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, none of us are brilliant enough. So we, we did this thing called Author in the Room where rather than the junior person writing a paper that's presented to their boss and the boss presents to their boss and the boss presents to the boss and the boss talks about it, no, 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 get rid of that. Get the person who knows most about it in the room. Sounds even so simple. Wearing, <laughs> even if they're wearing jeans or have a tattoo, right? Yeah. Do you know what? They're probably more of an expert on cybersecurity or Bitcoin or whatever. Than yeah, the, the absolutely. Five PhDs at the top. Yeah. So you get them in the room. That's part one. Part two is everyone else in the room has to behave in such a way that they don't scare the living daylights out of that person and they actually can contribute their research. 
And when you put it logically in terms of decision-making structure, and you can link the expertise to the decision at hand to the output, which is clearly informed by it, people logically get it. Mm. That, right, okay, I need to shut up here and listen and allow this person to speak because they're – and you call it something like author in the room. You Mm. put in place a process, and I am cautiously optimistic – that unlike what you absolutely correctly said about some folks will just like tick the box, yeah, we've done that. Mm. This formulated process, which is understood and communicated throughout the bank, which is senior sponsorship, which is now part of the pros and part of the culture, means actually that it's a norm, mm. habit. Mm. And actually, not only is it a norm and a habit that's internalized, it has sufficient checks and balances and accountability and transparency around it, whether that's the minutes of the meeting or that, you know, mm. that the people can challenge it, you know. And, and that's great because we've replicated that model in other organizations where particularly in hierarchical organizations were often, you know, less diversity towards the top. Yeah. You, you accelerate that diversity, you turbocharge that diversity straight into the meeting mm. and they understand why. Because yes. there's a clear input-output. So that's one example. Another example would be with a tech firm, actually, where it came from the counterfactual, where, again, all these brilliant people who were doing wonderful things produced a product which was basically biased and it got them into trouble legally. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They, 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 I won't say too much about it, but they got mm-hmm. into trouble legally. So there's a clear, whoops, you know, risk register motivation mm-hmm. to do something. Mm-hmm. And so what they did then was go back through the steps of how did this happen? And we go back to basically coding and the engineers, not HR, mm-hmm. coding the engineers, say, you need input at this stage, right? And we do workshops with the engineers and the coders. And again, rather than thinking this was kind of soft, woolly diversity training, they get that actually this is about what they do. It's yes. about their coding, their professionalism, their expertise. and then they know that they've got to get these people in the room or think about this or go mm. to system two thinking or go through this process step at this point, because mm. otherwise the ramifications down the line are potentially significant. And yes. if they can't do it there, then they've got to press the button and call for help. Mm. But you can't proceed. You can't pass go until no. you've done that. Yeah. And, and rather again than them, them thinking, oh God, this is just something I've got to tick the box and move on. They get the consequence of the decision. So yeah. I suppose part of it is in decision-making science, bringing that consequence into the moment that the decision's made. But this tech firm has continued with the process. There haven't been commensurate and replicable errors like they did before. And so, again, I'm cautious optimistic that, that we've changed that for the good. Yeah. And, and it, well, it's bringing accountability back, isn't it, as well? Mm-hmm. An understanding of one's own personal agency and accountability in these situations. Transparency in it. And yeah. Exactly. Checks and yeah. balance. Yeah, yeah. So if if I want to make that the rule rather than exceptions, so, yeah. you know, we've tried it, it works, now we need yeah. to get it accepted or, yeah. you know, make it habitual practice. Yeah. For me, the role of senior leaders is to create the conditions for inclusive decision-making to happen as a norm. Yeah. So how can C-suite leaders do that? So I think, you know, critical systems thinking is a massive skill that is a gap. It's a skills gap for me at a lot of levels of leadership, and that will help. But what else can C-suite leaders do to create the conditions for that type of environment? I think number one is they've got to start with themselves. Hmm. Right? Because it's very easy for leaders to manage other people, supposedly. 
Yeah. But if, if you don't work mm. on yourself, then you've got a credibility gap, right? And, and you know, I've been in so many AGMs or sessions where the leader's reading from a script and the people in the audience don't believe them because they know that the words aren't matching their own actions. So I think number one is they've got to work on themselves. Mm. And then we do a lot of work coaching, one-to-one, holding the mirror, workshops, as we talked about, narrowing mm. that distance, right? Mm. Getting, getting real-time feedback. And so, you know, myself or yourself as leaders, mm. you know, we need to create psychological safety in our immediate bubble. Whereas if I do something silly or say something stupid, people can call me out on it, right? Mm. And they don't get negative repercussions as a consequence. Mm. So I need to mm. kind of demonstrate that from the get-go, get real-time feedback, make sure that I'm a constant work in progress myself. Mm. Let's make a big assumption that we've done that. Okay, <laughs> a large Let's, assumption. <laughs> yeah. Then, then, or at least it's ongoing, or there's a system yeah, for, you yeah, know. Yeah. So, then, so then part two then is how you do it with the, the those around you, the team. Mm. We've really got two things, haven't we? We've got intrinsic motivation and extrinsic yeah. motivation. Mm. Again, being in this work like you, I've got to keep believing that fundamentally people are good people who want to do the right thing largely. So intrinsic motivation is tapping into that inner sense, isn't it, of why they might want to do it habitually. Mm. Yeah. intrinsically for their own enlightened self-interest yeah and that could be like i talked about with the coders that it's it's about professionalism it's their coding yeah. specialty mm. or it could be with the bank that actually they really care about the consequence of decision making for the economy mm. you know so it could be a deep sense of public um service or um professional responsibility or respect or your own ego or your own you know so it could be what are those intrinsic motivators right mm. but i think we can't be so naive as to only rely on that We've then got to think about the extrinsic motivators. Mm. We, you know, I don't like to kind of lead with this because it, you know, we, I hope that working on yourself and tapping into others can get us a long way there. But extrinsic motivators are those, those catchalls, right? Where there has to be consequences, mm. right? And so that could be where you get into linking it to remuneration, or it could be that you know your three hundred and sixty is visible to the whole team, or it could be that you know at an organisational level it's Glassdoor, it's reviews, or you know it's that sense of being accountable and transparent that there are consequences for your behaviours and your actions. Mm. So one thing we did at a professional services firm we worked with was you had partners, largely male, mm. who were kept promoting male partners, right. And they were saying, well, it's because it's the best person for the job. She isn't ready. You name it. You know, you name it. So we're like, OK, right. well, if you're right, right, then clearly well, the data will support that, won't it? So we look at, you know, the proportion, let's say the gender split at the level below, mm. the proportion of the promotions that they're doing. And if it, those proportions are different, then you've got to explain why. And we can demonstrate, right, that, that there's an inefficiency going on here. There's actually mm. positive discrimination going on in favour of their preferred candidates. Or we can look at that real-time information piece of like, okay, you kept you keep making those decisions. In our little Excel spreadsheet or algorithm, we can, in the moment, see the consequence of those decisions in terms of the diversity of your team in one year and two years and three years' time, right? So when, you, when you've got these targets... Mm. We can, we can show, so it's that kind of extrinsic motivations that can be linked. But I think that really is the third step of yourself and the the, the the carrot before you get to that. But it is it is doing those things with leaders, right? And mm. in a transparent, honest, collaborative way, because that's how you change behaviours. Well, we're back to feeling uncomfortable, aren't we? So we're basically asking them to 
So I'm careful with the word vulnerability, but but it is around feeling a little bit vulnerable, isn't it? Either with yourself or in front of others. And that's not comfortable for anyone, but it's necessary, is my opinion on. Do you know what, though? I, I'm a bit more positive about it because, yes, I, I agree. But what choice do we have? Because we're in 2022, 2023. Almost. <laughs> where, where, you know, things are changing so fast. I haven't got a clue how mm. that works. I haven't got a clue what the latest vocabulary is for this new term. I haven't got a clue. What... So if I present this non-vulnerable, know-it-all self, oh, yeah. I'm setting myself up for a fall. Mm. So for me, that isn't as comfortable as you might think. And so for me, this leaning into vulnerability thing isn't as scary or as you know risky as it might first appear because I don't really actually know any other way. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And basically it's the system that's, that's making you think that it's not allowed and that it feels vulnerable, but the system is is what is preventing you. Holding you back. Yeah, yeah, from moving into a place where you can have more competitive advantage, more innovation, more inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, detaching yourself from the system healthily. I've spent on a team call with a team, mm-hmm. right, who are all smart, wonderful, motivated, brilliant people. And we have a town hall, right? And they ask me questions. I know the answers to some of them, right? Hopefully, hopefully enough of them to maintain credibility. Um, but <laughs> some of them I don't, right? Yeah. And so I've just learned to, to say, I don't know that actually. What do you think? Or find it out. And and because ultimately, you know, th- there's this kind of I really feel we're at an inflection point where there's so much data coming in that our cognitive capacity can't keep up. Mm. So the only way to really deal with it is to be appropriately vulnerable and yeah. to kind of seek help from others, because otherwise, I think you just yeah you're setting yourself up for an implosion. Absolutely, but but I think you know it's uh, old habits die hard, isn't it? So yeah. so I mean, basically, I am a massive optimist like yourself, and I wholly believe in the power of us, and and I think the more we move towards that, and we're being forced to by technology and interconnectedness, but also I think we're being forced to because we thrive off human connection. And even though we're on 24-7, it's not all our connection is not human. So, you know, I, I wholly believe that people are going to move towards that because they want to yes. and because it's the right thing for society, organisation, the community, the team, et cetera, et cetera. But what, what are you seeing in terms of trends of the organisations you work with as to how quickly they're moving towards this more collective model? Yeah, it's patchy. Mm. I mean, you, you know, you've, you, you've said it, that, you know, old habits die hard, right? Yeah. And if you think about the, the buttons you can press with an exec or a, a client or a professional mm. colleague, right, you can press the kind of logical button. Okay, got it. You can press the intellectual button. Yeah, okay, feel smart. That's not a good. You can press the rational button, the commercial button. You can press all these buttons. Like, yep, 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 yep. Get it. Get it. Got it. Mm. But why why therefore don't you do and, and i think it, it is perhaps emotional it is perhaps the things that we we don't talk about as much in a professional setting mm. so we can logically get it but emotionally we can't display weakness or we can't you know so what i've seen with with some organizations there's one we've finished a, a big campaign with where we've done this kind of speak up culture mm. where we're just rewarding people and it's coming from the ceo Right, rewarding people for demonstrating you know, good questions or flagging things. It's kind of like you know health and safety campaigns of the past mm. where you're rewarded for flagging issues. 
One of the best examples I know was from the US State Department, where they actually set up a dissent channel. Back in the 90s, when they had the Balkans War and, and folks on the ground wanted to disagree with Washington, mm. they actually kind of dissented, but they, they changed it into this formal way where the State Department started to recognise productive dissent, where they'd actually encouraged productive dissent and actually started giving awards, people who dissented in the most effective way. So actually, rather than trying to stem the tide, actually, how do you co-opt this and use it to evolve? Because it's a group process. It's not that one person gets shot down or one person to be super brave, you know. Mm. There's there's things like that, I think, that that can evolve. It is patchy. I think one of the reasons it is patchy is because it's often not intentional. No. Right? And it's often like organisations get bounced into this when there's a PR disaster or when something goes wrong or there's a stakeholder or shareholder or board intervention. But if it can be intentional, almost like a, a work stream or a standing agenda of giant, an item at the exec, but like how do we encourage this? Right? Mm. How do we encourage people to ask or to share or to learn or collaborate? And there are ways, right? Mm. The World Economic Forum Skills Report, which yeah. talks about future skills and what we need to do. And although being an expert in anything in particular is going to be less and less useful per se, mm. and these soft skills will be more and more useful. How do we teach them and value them just as much as we would as technical expertise? Yeah. And how do we get them into the education system at a very, very early age yeah. <laughs> so that that can become part of what you learn as life skills? Yeah. I mean, I know in play in you know in Scandinavia they they're already teaching empathy in in sort of primary schools and things like that, and I think you know we're dealing with a generation of people who haven't been through that educational system, so therefore that development has been up to them or not. Yeah. Where does inclusion for you fit into competitive advantage then for organisations both in the marketplace but also in terms of the war for talent? Yeah, I think um, as you'd expect square bang in the center right because often the argument is well why inclusion mm. right i've got so many things on my to-do list so many competing budget priorities or time break what why inclusion well flip it around the counterfactual why not right because if you don't what are the consequences mm. and we can document loads of corporate failures right whether it's exclusion of cognitive diversity mm. you know, swiss air Kodak, you know, we can talk about, you know, the exclusion of personality types or inability to include differences in decision making, yeah. you know, Beeman Brothers, you know, mm. we can document the counterfactual very easily. I think it's then going from a deficit model to a value add model where we can demonstrate the added value of inclusion. And so clinical trials, right? Mm. When you have, when you include a more diverse sample in your clinical trials, you save more lives right, from drugs, because you are actually having drugs that have a more efficacy and, and efficiency for different skin types or mm. cultural backgrounds or whatever, right? Pretty good correlation. Yeah. Or, or tech, right? If you think about it in tech design, you're not going to produce driverless cars that bump into black people more than white people or mm. that don't recognize wheelchair users because they're not the classic body shape. Mm. And we're already seeing it, for example, in car design, where Volvo now have gone open source in their research, in their gender work on on car Mm. design. And we're saving more women's lives because cars are being designed finally to account for women's bodies. Yeah, the airbags and the reactions. So so I I think, you know, when people kind of poo-poo inclusion, it's like, oh, whatever. I mean, 
you know, excuse me for being mildly dramatic, but let's bring it to life and death, right? And if you can save lives through clinical trials or car safety, why wouldn't you, right? And and then you can bring it down to the war for talent and you can you can go through the whole business cycle, right, of attraction, retention, recruitment, you know, that fundamentally in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yes, I need a decent paycheck. Yes, I need it paid on time. But fundamentally, I want to be treated as a human being. And I want to be psychologically safe. And I want to feel respected and valued and contribute. I want to be able to see the output of my actions. Mm. So all those things matter. Mm. So, you know, we, we could go through, couldn't we, all the way from life and death yeah. to the micro things about people management. But I think inclusion matters in that sense. And I hope that one of the consequences of the, quite frankly, phenomenal years we've just been through with COVID, Black Lives Matter, recession. I hope hope the disruption has been so profound that we now are open to new ways of thinking about this. And we do finally recognise that maybe there is something to this and maybe, you know, balancing life and, you know, where people work and how people work and whatever actually does matter to the bottom Mm. line, does matter to what people value in in a job. Yeah, and I think also I'm hoping that we're going to rethink the way we support leaders in terms of coaching, accompanying and supporting them through this massive transition in leadership paradigm, which they're in the middle of, which COVID has brought to the fore as well for me in terms of the operational reality, but also in terms of that pressing need that every leader knows they have to turn up a little bit differently. So I'm hoping that we'll sort of democratise access to coaching and, and support in and it's not just for executives and C-suite leaders, it's it's for across the board, I think. I hope so. And I, and I think we can, can't we? Because in many ways, the cost of learning in some ways is coming down, isn't it? And we yeah. can and share. And whether it's just, you know, hacks or top tips that can be shared, you know, or, mm. or things like that. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful there are things that can be done in that regard. But I think it's still worth disproportionately investing in those with more seniority or more power because, you know, more consequences. Yeah. Yeah, I think you need to do both, but mm. often it's just the top that get yeah. access to that type of discussion. But yeah. but I think just demystify so this type of conversation, you know, just demystifying inclusion mm. because everyone has a different definition of it. But you know how it can play out in an organisation and and how people can think about it and and act around it. So, which brings me to one of my last questions. Time is running, but would you have a final call to action or recommendations for leaders listening to this, thinking, ah, okay. Inclusion 3.0, inclusion 4.0. I've got to do something. So where do I start? For sure. I mean, to your point about senior, everyone, what can mm. I'll give you something particularly for senior folks and then something for anyone. Mm. Right. I think if you're particularly senior and therefore you've got more budget, authority, power, you do need to, I think, apply your brain cells to this in the wider context of strategy, data, governance, leadership and systems, right? How does this impact your organisation, your team, right? And it's not just a Friday afternoon activity. Mm. How do you generally embed this in the decisions that you're making on a daily basis, right? You know, you can look on our website, you know, include.com, you can read books, you can see, but get a maturity framework, get away and and benchmark yourself now and where you want to be. And don't just, you know, throw a few things at the wall and see what sticks. Be intentional about it, right? Mm. If you think you actually you haven't got your thinking clear on a strategy, focus on that. If you think you haven't got your behaviours right on leadership, focus on that. Mm. If you haven't got your data sorted, focus, you know, pick one or two and, and hold yourself accountable for making that shift. 
and it's it's doable, right? Mm. The second thing I'd say for anybody, yeah. but again, especially for leaders, is what can you do? And I think it will be ultimately your your point about you know vulnerability being scary for people or not natural to some people. Mm. We're in a situation now where, you know, the world really has changed. You know, I was brought up with a golden rule, right, which was treat others as you wish to be treated. Yeah. Really nice. Right. 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 A lovely person. Great. (laughs) But the thing is, I think actually that's not enough Mm. in 2022. And where we are now is, I think, the platinum rule, which is treat others as they wish to be treated. Right. Because ultimately, if we expect them to adapt to us, we're never going to fully include and we're never going to learn and grow ourselves as leaders. But if we can adapt to them, then we're automatically including them and we learn and grow. Now, doing that 24-7 every day is tough, right? I, I, I know because I try, I try to do it. <laughs> it's tough. Mm. But if you don't do a bit of it, you're never going to shift the needle, right? No. So there's too many people talking about inclusion but expecting others to adapt to them. Talk about it by all means, if you know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but then try and adapt to them. And if you demonstrate that change, that vulnerability, it might be a little vulnerability, a little change, a little offering, a little, then you'll get a bit of reciprocity back. And you start a virtuous circle, right? Which opens up possibilities for conversation, action, change, learning. And if we all did that, hope burns eternal. Excellent. I'm going to leave our list. I don't need to add anything to that. Hope burns burns eternally. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. And thank you for coming and sharing your insights and your research. Where can people find out more about Included, you and what you do? So Mm included.com is our website. Please go on there. I'd especially recommend looking at our impact report, where we do a lot of case studies on the clients we work with and the changes we've liked. Look at our impact index as well, which measures it. So when you ask me what can leaders do, there's mm. your impact index. Um, but included.com uh, will be the start for all of that. And, of course, you can reach out to me or any of my colleagues as well. And then we've got some books out. Our most recent one is The Key to Inclusion, uh, which was published in July. So, yeah, I hope those are useful resources for people who you know want to do good stuff in their organisations. Excellent. Uh, and I will put all those links in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for a great conversation. Really great talking to you. Thank you. All the best. Likewise. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the learning it brought. And if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your feedback and your review. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Transformation.